Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. This is Corolla Digital. Welcome back to the Dr. Drew Podcast. And again, we are continuing a topic we've been uh, hitting, which is disorders of genitalia. It's been kind of wild. We talked to Dr. Alter, and I got a ton more questions for him. We'll bring him back. And what came up in that conversation was the environmental biology of the vulva, that it's unique in terms of how it responds to hormones, and each woman is different. And I'm going to bring in a physician tonight today who's an expert in that area, who deals in just in disorders of that region for women. And pain in that area is a really common thing, and I'm interested to hear what he has to say about that. We're also going to take your call, so please do call in if you can. We're going to start off with a couple of alcohol-related and uh, pain, I think. Let's start out with uh, Jay on uh, your 27 Boston. Jay, what's going on? Hey, Jay, that's true. How you doing? Good. What's up? Hey, I'm just curious. I'm, uh, I'll just preface it. I'm a, I'm a germaphobic hypochondriac insomniac. Nice. And I self-medicate with alcohol, and I've been doing this for a very long time. I, I just, first of all, I just like the way you uh, sort of own your pathologies. That's uh, quaint. Quaint. But yeah, I, well, I've I've been having I've had troubles in the past. And I understand. I'm kind of borderline on alcoholism. I don't know what, <laughs> whether or not I could uh, qualify as an alcoholic. But um, well, let's let's talk about let's just define the terms and things first of all. The most common reason that people develop a problem with a substance is they're using it to regulate emotions. I mean, that's what that's what sort of causes them to pick up the bottle in the first place, or you know, the whatever it is, the pills. They're unregulated. Emotions, feelings are too prolonged, too intense, and too negative. Yeah. Now, in this case, it sounds like there's very specific kinds of symptoms you're trying to treat, which is anxiety and sleeplessness. Is that right? Well, it started off uh, about, I guess, 19 with sleeplessness. I've never – I've always had the insomnia issues. And um, I've gone – I basically recently I, I've gone to a doctor for the first time in about 10 years. I had a whole checkup and everything. I was worried about my liver and my kidneys and everything with the alcohol use. It turned out that it was all right. Um, but uh, where are we going with this? Yeah, so it turned out that's where I started using the alcohol was just to work with the insomnia issues because I've tried everything from everything over the counter to even the prescription drugs. They tried me on uh, lorazepam and um, Ambien and whatnot. And they all had side effects that were awful to me. Like what? And, what happened? Well, like the um, the Ambien, apparently I was sleepwalking and I started a fight with somebody oh. that I don't even remember doing. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, and the lorazepam, I would wake up the next day and I would never feel good. I just felt shitty the whole day. Right. understand. And those are the only two medications you've tried? Uh, I Well, you know, they did the... Uh, the, the melatonin was awful. I felt awful with that as well. Have you? Have uh, you? Who? What kind of evaluations have you had for why you're not sleeping? I have ne- basically it's just been in office discussions. I've never had a sleep study or anything. Right. It seems like you maybe need a little more specific evaluation to try to figure out what's going on. It sounds like it's an anxiety disorder. I mean, because you say you have, you know, you what you call yourself a germaphobe. You have sort of OCD and anxiety, right? Yeah, that's. I was going to say that's only been developed. I've been. I'll tell you, I've been unemployed for a year and a half, and it's very, very stressful. And the germaphobia, germaphobia, whatever it might be, the hypochondriasm, that's only been really developing over the last year and a half, and it's gotten to the point where my doctor put me on Xanax now, and I'm at the low dose, but it it works fantastic, um, but not in every case. But right. um, right. I'm, I'm, it's still not helping me sleep though. And yet you're still drinking, too. I, and that's, that's another thing that I hate, that I'm using alcohol on top of the Xanax. Yeah. Well, let's talk about whether or not you have an addiction or an alcoholism. And really, so that the definition of that is a biological disorder with a genetic basis. So is there anybody in your family with alcoholism? My father. All right. And then the hallmark is progressive use in the face of adverse consequence. Have you had any consequences from the using? Um. Not really. See, my the I've been I'm worried about damage to my brain because right. I I've watched your shows in the past and I've seen you discuss brain damage related to the alcohol use and yep. alcohol abuse. Yep. 
And um, my doctor, I, I met with him last week, and uh, we had a discussion about my, because I told him about how concerned about I was about my uh, liver and my kidneys. And he gave me a good 10-minute talk about how resilient your kidneys are and how they can repair themselves. The, and your the, liver, the, and liver, is, the liver is very resilient. Brain, not so much. That's what I was concerned. I wanted to see if you could shed some light on the alcohol damage that I might be causing to my brain and, well, and what I could do to, uh, because I've been having off days. Yeah. Uh, recently, over the last, I don't know, few months, I've noticed it. You know, I've lost my train of thought, and I've never been a person to but, have that. But then experience. that could be the Xanax, right? You're taking Xanax the whole time? Uh, I've only, well, since uh, mid-September. Well, yeah. okay. So Xanax typically causes memory problems. I mean, that's very, very typical. And we know you're prone to amnesia from these kinds of medicine because of what happened to you with the Ambien. Yeah, Okay, right. so that wouldn't be that surprising. Yeah, it's, you're, you're sort of playing with fire here. It's very difficult. Um, the, w- the way I would approach it, Jay, is you know maybe get somebody to give you some sort of behavioral techniques for dealing with sleep, which may or may not work. And if they don't, there's a medicine called Seroquel that I use a lot of for people with bad anxiety to get them to sleep that has no addictive potential. Seroquel, Brilliant. yeah, talk to your doctor about that. And but if you're an al- I don't know that you're an alcoholic though. I just don't. I don't know. The, the question is, uh, how much are you drink? The thing with my, you know, I'll tell you the truth. I have uh, about three stiff Long Island iced teas every night with my friends. So that's and, like nine shots a night. Uh, it's probably more than that. Ten yeah. shots, twelve shots a night. That's a lot of alcohol. That's a lot. I mean, even if you're not an alcoholic, you can still hurt yourself with all that. Do you feel that you have to do it for reasons other than sleep? Well, no. On the weekends, you know, Friday and Saturday, I love you out with my friends, and that's just—I guess—it just comes with the territory, you know. I, I mean, I could—I could stay away from alcohol if I wanted to, but I'm just going to be a wreck for a few days. I'm not sleeping. Yeah. You know? See, I think you got—you got to go back and ask for. If you're going to have to take a pharmacological agent to sleep, don't use one that can damage your brain. I mean, it's a pretty simple equation, right? Right. Especially I mean, the dose. If you were taking two ounces or something, all right. Well, it's not that big a deal. But you're taking. 10, 12, 14 shots a night, that's going to hurt you eventually. It is. I can't right. imagine you want to be – and then with you add the Xanax to that, uh, even if you're, not an, if you're not an addict, you're still going to have consequences for all that using. You just are. Like you said, you forget things, lose track of things. You, you, want, you, want, you want to be able to flourish. You don't want to be brought, you know, held down by these, these chemicals, right? It's awful. I, 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 would, I don't want to be uh, a medicated person. Yeah. I, I want to be – a person that wakes up every day and, you know, I'd love to get a job and go to work and uh, not worry about it. I worry about it. I'm like, it's kind of like ruining my life. I worry about everything. Yeah, like that story that Adam just told about how he ate that nut off the ground, I almost had to go and take his ass because I was freaking out about that. What what was story he told? Tell me which story. The, he was talking about the story. He had like a nut that he, he fell on the ground. Oh, you're... No. Pigeon. <laughs> I, he, I what, had a panic attack at that. What he did was he Adam Adam is uh, a like like Teflon. He doesn't get sick. He eats things he, out of the toilet. In this case, he dropped an almond on the tarmac at the Burbank Airport. Kicked it. A pigeon picked at it. He ran over, picked it up, and ate it. Sorry, Jay. I don't mean to make you worse with that, but that's for the other listeners. <laughs> well, what no, we're talking I mean, about. It's just awful. Like, I was on the train today. A guy had his legs crossed. He touched the bottom of his shoe with his hand and. Boom! I, my red, my face was red. I was boiling. I, everything freaks me out. Yeah, Jay. If I were you, I, I would really talk to somebody that specializes in OCD and sleeplessness. Uh, get a good referral to somebody who deals with these things because you're a complicated case. You're not a simple case, and I really don't think you're an alcoholic addict. I think, I think you're having all your anxiety and your sleeplessness may be the result of having been raised around somebody like that, and you may be using because. That was the solution to every problem in your household. But I don't think you have the quite love for the substance and the momentum with it that most addicts alcoholics do. But you have OCD. You have anxiety disorder. You have sleeplessness. I bet you an expert, particularly in the sort of OCD area, would be able to manage this problem either behaviorally and or with some pharmacology that would be much safer than what you're doing. Let's go to Greg. Greg, 22. Greg, what's going on? Hey. Uh, I Sorry. A little nervous. Um, I am 22. I, I live in Denver, and I got a good life here. I feel pretty healthy overall. Have some social anxiety I've been dealing with my whole life, um, but that's not too bad. It's, it's pretty manageable. 
every once in a while, I have these like obsessive thoughts of harming myself, which is very alarming to me. Are, are they um, I, now, are they sort of a plan to hurt yourself, or are they just like you're standing in a high place and think, well, what if I, maybe I might throw myself off this building and I can't control it? Yeah, it's it's more. It's not like a huge plan. It's like kind of a just a, a thought of like, yeah, throwing myself off of something or hurting myself with like uh, something sharp. But that's like. That's such a ridiculous thought to me, but I just keep having that. Thought. But but let but let's so, but let's talk about. It. Is it an intrusive thought? Like um, this could I I could uncontrollably do this crazy thing. I could, somebody could overtake me, and I could hurdle myself. Or it's I I want to harm myself. You understand the difference? Mm, yes. Okay. I feel pretty good about saying it's the it's more of an intrusive thing. Right. It's more of an OCD anxiety symptom. Right. And while it yeah. may be coming from some depressive types of phenomenon, the these don't really sound like suicidal thoughts per se. They sound like intrusive thoughts, which are more, again, in the OCD kind of realm. Have you ever been treated mm-hmm. for that stuff? Um, I have never I have never been treated, but that was my main question is this is this something that has a good chance to escalate that I should try to take care of as soon as possible? Um, how long have you had this for? Um, probably, I'll say about a year. Did you have, pan- do you have panic attacks too? I do not have panic, panic attacks, but the social anxiety stuff is really what brings it out. All right. Well, clearly the responsible thing as a physician for me to say is yes of course you should have this checked out i'm talking to you over the radio of the podcast here it's no way i can thoroughly evaluate you i'm not a psychiatrist i'm an internist that does mental health issues but it's something that should be carefully and thoroughly evaluated so that's the that's the formal answer informal answer is uh when i was uh 1920 i had panic attacks severe and then i had sort of generalized anxiety and i had some of these similar intrusive thoughts with no intention. I mean, zero, but I know that feeling. I know what that is. Yeah. Uh, and it was extremely uncomfortable. Uh, but it was really, and indeed, I was depressed also. I wasn't aware of it at the time because I was so deeply uh, experiencing anxiety and panic. Mm-hmm. And these crazy thoughts would come in. Oh, it's almost comical in retrospect. And it, this stuff comes on in the sort of 18 to 22 window. That's when your brain is sort of prone to these things. And you're trying to yeah. you know, gain your autonomy and go off to school and all these things. And so there's a lot of pressures that bring anxiety in, dish, in addition to the developmental process that you're going through. Right. So it's not uncommon. It's prognostically pretty good. But by all means, yeah, you should get it checked out. And, and by the way, I, I was pissed. I was completely mismanaged myself. People didn't treat me right. And so I m- was miserable for like three years. Very – it was awful. And, uh, and I think it made me interested in young people and mental health and stuff because I was so badly mismanaged that it could have – didn't have to suffer like that. And you don't have to suffer either. Okay? Well, yeah, thanks a lot. Right. And that, that's actually my interest too. I work in a, a neuroscience clinic. Oh, fantastic. I mean that's, that's – I was de- we didn't you know neuroscience at sort of college level and even graduate level at that period of history didn't have the amazing material that you guys get to get into so you you can really have insight into how your brain works and why this happens and all the biology of what this is it, it's sort of reassuring isn't it yeah 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 yeah, yeah. absolutely all right Greg go take care all right, of it all right for taking my call you got it my pleasure okay yeah. at this point I would like to welcome my guest to the program. He is Dr. Andrew Goldstein. He's the director for the Center of Vulva, Vulva and Vaginal Disorders in New York City and Washington, D.C. He's also the president of the International Society for Study of Women's Sexual Health. Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for joining me today. No, thanks for having me. So we met at, if I remember right, at the MTV Video Music Awards. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. You, you leaned over a railing and handed me your card and said, call me. And I said, this is something I want to talk about. So here we are finally. Great. That's great. Thanks but for having me I again. Do, I do appreciate it. And I, this is probably something I'm going to have, a, as we go along, a, a million questions. So please bear with me. Um, I think we ought to start this conversation with the conversation about pain, if you don't mind, because that is probably the most common complaint I hear about and certainly we get in the media, which is sort of in the area of vulvar pain. And where would you – I know you could probably break that down into 17 different categories. What's the most common error we should start with? So the first most common error is that this is a psychological issue. 
clearly women who have pain develop anxiety. They develop depression because they're in pain. They also get anxious and depressed because their doctors, their healthcare providers, can't tell them why they're having pain. Um, but the, the psychological aspect is not the cause of their pain. So that's the most important thing that women who have pain with sex should know, that it's not in their head, that there is a physiologic cause, there's a medical cause for more than 98% of, of women who have sexual pain. So that's the most important thing, that um, just because their doctor or their nurse practitioner or their PA can't figure it out, that doesn't mean that there's not a real cause. Well, now let, let me just sort of discuss that for a second because in, in my experience, when people can find a medical cause, of course, it's, it's pretty straightforward and it gets treated and it's frustrating and the people feel better. But in the cases where everyone scratches their head and looks around, magically whenever there's sort of the patient being kind of pushed away from the system and nobody has answers for them, always find sexual abuse every 100% of the time in my experience. And when there's a whole field of study about the disorganization of sensation that comes out of the pelvic region as a result of sexual abuse. So the pain is real, but it's not physiological necessarily in the sense that it's somatic. Does that fit with your experience or is that something I'm just experiencing because I work in psychiatric hospitals? I think it's more that you've experienced psychiatric hospitals. I think the, the data and the studies show that um, and there's, the studies are mixed, but the majority of studies have shown that the women who have vulvar pain actually do not have a higher um, incidence of sexual abuse okay. or only slightly higher. Okay, let, let, me, let me then uh, narrow that down a little bit. So we're talking about the external genitalia, which is the vulva, right. which is one source of pain with intercourse, right? Yes, it's the majority of pain with intercourse. And don't they typically in that case – interesting because the, the kinds that I hear about are the ones more after penetration. And this one will be more painful at the time of penetration. Is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. Burning, knife-like, cutting pain upon penetration. That's, okay. See, that's the stuff I don't hear as much about it so much as this sort of vague, deep, intense pain that goes on throughout the day even that's not related to the external genitalia. That's the more common with the sexual abuse group. Uh, so, my the, the, so the pelvic pain. So the, I think uh, if we try to break it down, the more vulvar and sexual pain upon penetration is less linked, but that you're right, the deeper chronic pelvic pain often combined with um, gastrointestinal complaints. Yes. Um, they are much more likely to have had okay. a history of sexual abuse. Okay, excellent. So now let's start breaking down the external genitalia sources of pain. Um, is it vulvovestibulitis is the sort of common diagnosis you hear these days? Right. So that's a common diagnosis, but it really is a, it's really a symptom. It's not a diagnosis. Um, it's really, uh, there's a term vulvodynia, which just means uh, vulvar pain of an unknown cause. But the truth of the matter is that with adequate testing and adequate history and adequate uh, examination, the cause can be determined, and therefore, you know, I don't typically use the word vulvodynia or even vulvar vestibulitis because we can figure out what the cause is. And surprisingly, and, uh, which most people are really surprised, but the most common cause of sexual pain in young women uh, in the United States today is actually their birth control pills. Oh, that you warmed my heart because that's that's been my experience, absolutely. And no one ever First of all, no one ever thinks about it, and secondly, no one ever warns these women that this is a possibility. It's, That's absolutely true. It's, it's not on the package insert. It's not discussed at all. You could ask a hundred gynecologists, and ninety would say absolutely it's not the cause of the pain. But in fact, it is the by far the most common cause of sexual pain in women younger than fifty. And is that primarily the result of sort of unopposed progesterone, not enough estrogen, and is it also the testosterone byproducts? What, what, what's the hormonal issue there? So that so it is actually the new birth control pills. So not the birth control pills of twenty, twenty-five, thirty years ago, but all these new birth control pills. They actually are formulated to lower testosterone. And the tissue at the entrance of the vagina, called the vulvar vestibule, is extraordinarily hormonally sensitive. But it needs testosterone. It actually needs testosterone much more than it needs estrogen. Wow. And so these pills, they lower testosterone by 90, 95%. So this tissue gets thinner and thinner and thinner, and the glands, which are normally supposed to cause lubrication, they don't work. And so these women, they have, you know, probably 30 or 40 percent of women who go on these new pills have low desire because of low testosterone, and frankly, probably 20, 25 percent of women who go on these pills have low lubrication, 
but 5 maybe 7% of the women on these pills actually have frank pain, severe pain, debilitating pain. Because testosterone, which I was not aware of, I knew there was some question about that, but you're saying specifically testosterone is the issue, then something like an estrogen cream would not help. True. You really need both an estrogen and testosterone cream, and unfortunately, you have to get them off the birth control pill. They have to come off because they've suppressed the hormone receptors by being on these pills. So you have to, they have to stop their pill, at least temporarily, and use both a combination estrogen and testosterone cream, but the testosterone is at least 10 times more concentrated than the estrogen. So a little estrogen is important, but the real component here is the testosterone um, in that cream. Do you guys have to compound your own tre- cream? I'm not yeah. aware of any creams that actually yeah, are available. Yeah, you have to get compounded. Oh, my God. And, and if they don't get the cream but start the pill, what percentage come back without the creams? So, well, first of all, some people do get better just by stopping the pill. It depends on how long they've been on it. Um, but also some of the problems with these new birth control pills is they are actually uh, causing long-term hormonal changes even years after stopping the pill. I, I'm hearing that, the way they talk about continued dryness and decreased the sort of mood and screwed up uh, libido. And I, I've sort of been in that school when, well, I don't, man, maybe it's not. I, that seems weird to me that it would go on you know, six, 18 months after they stopped the but pill. It, but, it, but it does because the, the, you've revved up the liver. Um, these pills are so unbelie- uh, unbelievably strong. They rev up the, the, the progesterones in these pills are so strong. They rev up the liver to make a protein that binds to testosterone. Mm-hmm. So months, years after being on the pill, the, that protein is called sex hormone binding globulin. That protein is still four, five, six times higher than it's supposed to be. So the free testosterone, the testosterone that can actually work on the receptors, that's still very, very low, months, years off of being off the pill. So let, let me explain that to people. So sex hormone binding globulin is a protein that flies around in your blood, and it binds, like its name suggests, sex hormones. And the, it keeps them in a bound state so they're not available free in the blood to act at the receptors say at the vaginal tissue or in your brain where you have libido, and it ties up the uh, concentrations in a bound state so it's not available for physiological activity. Should we be getting rid of these progestational pills? Yeah, I, I mean, for the majority of women, they actually do very well. If you're 16 and you have terrible acne and, um, you know, and, or you have weight gain, uh, hair growth, you know, for that person, or you're having very irregular cycles, for that person, these pills may be a godsend. They may be great. So um, I wouldn't throw them all out, but I think that what's very important is that the prescribing physician or nurse practitioner or PA, what has, they have to be aware that if a woman comes in and says, you know, I've had low libido, um, I'm starting to have dryness, we have, we have so many 25 and 27 and, and even 20-year-old women using lubricants, not for fun, but because they need to. And it makes no sense whatsoever. Well, and the lubricants don't even work. Here's the most common complaint I hear when I know this is coming in the door. I'm allergic to my boyfriend's semen because mm-hmm. every time he ejaculates inside me, it burns. Therefore, I must be allergic. That's the complaint that you get over and over again. And, and no one does anything with it. No one looks for it. They go, well, maybe you are. Anyway, what else bothering you? <laughs> so, right. It's yeah, great. well, that's, that's, that's my life. I, I see about 500 women a year with sexual pain and about – 65 to 70% it's because of birth control pills. So um, if the average doctor figured it out, then I'd be out of a business, but that's okay. <laughs> I'd be happy with that. What, right. You'd move on to something else. What, what pill do you think is a good alternative for a woman that has had that side effect from these newer pills, so to speak? So the old pills, they used to call them um, Orthonovum-135, um, Avcon-35. What about the triphasic pills? Um, the old triphasic pills, like triphasal, um, but not the ortho-tricycline, because not those, enough the tricycline was, again, formulated to lower testosterone. So we want to use the progesterones we call second-generation progest- progestins, not the third- and fourth-generation ones that really, you know, they... They were picked on purpose to lower testosterone. Um, well, birth, because birth control pill manufacturers um, get a secondary indication for acne. And, and when you get a secondary indication, as you know, that extends their patent life. And wow. they make hundreds of millions of dollars more. You know, birth control pill on a 
still on patent can make four, five, six, eight hundred million dollars a year. So if you extend the patent life of a pill for just six months by getting a secondary indication, you're making the, the, the pharmaceutical company hundreds of millions of dollars more. So this is sort of one of the reasons why they pick these things. Um, and, and again, for many women, uh, it's okay, but for the person who really has a problem, they have to know that they have a problem. And, you know, this is the area of my research. We actually think that it's, you know, a, a genetic defect in what we call the androgen receptor, the testosterone receptor. And some women who have very efficient um, receptors, they don't need much testosterone. So if you lower it by 60, 70, 80 percent, these receptors, because they're so efficient, they do perfectly well, uh. and they don't have low libido, and they do great on these pills. But if you have a very inefficient receptor and you can't, it doesn't bind to the hormone very well, then if you drop it maybe even by 20 or 30 percent, well, now you have a problem. And so that's the problem is that everyone is different. They have different genes. And we just have to be aware when we prescribe these things that, it, that it's not one size fits all. Is tri- you said triphasal, right? Was that the medicine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that a reasonable place to start for someone who doesn't have acne, doesn't have mood disturbance, just looking for contraception? That or, um, again, orthonovum 135, the generic is that is called Nikon 135. It's a higher dose pill, has a little more estrogen, which is actually good for the vulva and the vagina, um, and it's less likely to cause it. Sometimes the triphasal pill, triphasic pills, can actually cause a little more mood swings. So I, I tend to just avoid those if possible. Um, they were sort of formulated to more mimic a woman's cycle. Right. But that was sort of, again, a marketing ploy. I mean, these birth control pills are not a, a natural cycle, and to try to make it exactly like a woman's cycle is really not that useful. So I'm just not a big fan of, of, those, of that as much as just the old-fashioned pills that are around 25, 30 years ago. Um, that maybe their moms were on, like Orthonovum 135 or Avcon 35. Are we adding back a breast cancer risk with those higher estrogens? Well, these are still considered low-dose pills. I mean, these are, you know, the, the higher-dose pills are 50 micrograms or higher. So these are still were considered the low-dose pills. Um, and, in fact, we used to think with the higher estrogens that there's a higher risk of blood clots. But, yeah. in fact, now these newer pills are the ones that are causing a much, much higher blood clot risk, like Yaz and Yasmin and Biaz, because it's the progesterone in these pills now that are increasing the risk of blood clots. If it's not the pharmacology causing the word you don't like, vulvar vestibulitis or vulvar pain, what are the other causes? The second most common cause of pain is actually tight pelvic floor muscles. Hmm. Is Is that vaginismus? So vaginismus is a term, again, another term I don't love, that actually may even disappear from the, the DSM, the, the Diagnostic Manual of, of Diseases, because it implies that these women have tight muscles only upon the threat of penetration. Mm. But in fact, they, are, they have tight muscles all the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a psychological cause. It's not that they, they've been abused or they have been ra- raped. It's that... Um, the, they have tight pelvic floor muscles, and they can have them for many reasons. Certain behaviors, like holding urine. So I have lots of nursery school teachers or uh, kindergarten teachers who won't leave the classroom because they're squeezing their pelvic floor muscles all day long because they can't go urinate. They get tight pelvic floor muscles. Hmm. I have a lot of women who do uh, Pilates, but to an extensive degree, and they don't do it well, so their pelvic floor muscles get so tight that they can't relax, and they have pain upon penetration. Um, People who have low back pain or hip pain can compensate by tightening up their pelvic floor muscles and actually then have pain upon sex. So it's not that they've all been abused and therefore they're just reflexively squeezing these muscles to prevent penetration. So there are lots of reasons to cause tight pelvic floor muscles. I think wasn't there a a theory flying around for a while that it was some sort of reflex disorder, some spinal reflex that was triggering this? So the, the general, the, there is some idea of generalized vulvar pain or general vulvodynia is that the brain gets um, over on edge, we call central sensitization, so that indeed um, it becomes this pain loop from the spine to the vulva to the brain and just gets worse and worse, and then the muscles um, compensate to get tight as well. Um, that 
you know, the problem with that is that almost all the studies that use medications to break that pain loop have done nothing. Okay. Um, they've, they've been shown to the tricyclic antidepressants, um, even lidocaine, topical medications. They've actually been shown to be no better than placebo for the treatment of these disorders. I, and I think uh, if I'm right that a lot of I think I'm this physiology, as I understand it, is correct, and I, I don't think many people understand this or know this. That with arousal, there is sort of a, initially a relaxation of the vaginal and pelvic uh, muscles. Correct? Absolutely. In yeah. fact, when they used to take you know videos of Kinsey and Masters and Johnson would take videos of, of couples um, engaging in intercourse, not porn, but you know, they were trying to study this, they would actually watch the woman's vulva completely relaxed. You would actually see the whole, all the muscles relax. You could even see the skin relax as the woman anticipated penetration. The, the opening would increase in diameter. I think, again, people are, are, do not understand that. So what is the treatment or what are the treatments for pe- tight pelvic floor musculature? So the, the main safe treatment is physical therapy. So there's over 3,000 special, specially trained women's health physical therapists in the United States who actually can do both external and intravaginal physical therapy to help stretch these muscles and get women, teach women to relax these muscles, not to get them stronger, to relax these muscles. So the so, opposite of Kegels. The, sort of the opposite of Kegels, exactly. Now, sometimes women learn Kegels just because they now know how to squeeze those muscles, so when you can figure out how to squeeze them, you can figure out how to relax them. Oh, interesting. But the goal here is not to, not to strengthen or um, get them tighter, but is actually to get them to relax and relax when they need to, which is uh, during penetration. So that's the mainstay of treatment. We, other, we use um, muscle relaxants. Um, we also, you know, for example, uh, vaginal valium suppositories to try to relax the that muscles. I've never heard of. That's fascinating. Um, and because you get a much higher concentration of the medication right in that area, um, if you use them either vaginal suppositories or even rectal suppositories, we even occasionally, in really terrible cases, need to use Botox injections in these muscles to get these muscles to get out of spasm. And when they get out of spasm and they get back to their normal length, it tends to stay like that. Other than these areas we've talked about so far, are there other areas really you're excited about or interested in right now? Well, we're learning a lot about um, nerve. Uh, uh, there are some women who actually are born with too many nerve endings in this area, and these are the women who are again told that they are, you know, that it's all psychological. But in fact, what's happened is that they this tissue right at the entrance is unique tissue, and actually are born with it. Um, and um, one of the ways to treat that can be surgery or there are other medications and um, nerve endings. But the, at least the understanding <laughs> of the different types of pain, instead of all lumping them into this vulvodynia category or vulvar pain category and saying, you know, we treat you know, the vulvar pain this way, but in fact we try with diagnosis and testing and history to figure out the exact cause of their pain, and even genetic testing now for the hormones. And so we now are really getting to, we're breaking down the pain. It's sort of like 100 years ago, people would talk about chest pain. Right. And, you know, that could be, a bro, you know, could be cardiac disease. It could be a uh, lung cancer. And you would never treat those two things the same way. Well, now we're finally figuring out the different causes of the pain and therefore tailoring treatments. And that's what's so exciting about what we're doing. Let me move off pain for a second and, and ask, do you, does your work also take you into orgasmic function? Um, it does, um, but, you know, I, I tend to do more of women who have such as persistent genital arousal, women who actually who are having, you know, unwanted arousal. But we certainly do work with women who have difficulty achieving orgasm, and we are working with different pharmacologic agents to try to help them. The persistent sexual arousal is something that always fascinates people. Basically what happens is women get in a state where they're having constant orgasms, one after the other, and it's extremely unpleasant for them. I know men love snickering and going, oh, I love that, that problem. But it's, these women are in quite a bit of distress. What is that typically, and what do you guys do for it? So that usually the most common cause is when a woman starts or stops a medication that they're using to treat anxiety or depression or even a seizure disorder. And it basically there is a, the, the chemicals in the brain get thrown off. You know, there's supposed to be a balance of the chemicals in the brain between things that cause excitation and inhibition. So, you know, we're always in when, in the appropriate situation, uh, when you get aroused, the, the, 
the neurochemicals that cause excitation rise, the ones that cause inhibition lower, and then you have an orgasm. And as, as most people know, after orgasm, there's a period of time where you can't have another orgasm or there's a refractory period while these, as these chemicals come back into balance. But what's happened in the majority of these women is that these chemicals are completely out of balance and they have just a persistent elevation of these excitatory ones and none of the inhibitory ones. So that's the most common cause. There are other causes of the nerves that go to the clitoris. They can get inflamed for a variety of reasons, masses or blood vessels that compress on these nerves. So does does ever some sort of – is there any behavioral issues that trigger that? Because I've heard people sort of – reporting this after, like, vigorous activity or something? Um, I've actually, uh, you know, some people talk about um, very, very strong vibrators can possibly cause some nerve damage to the clitoris. Um, but I haven't, uh, the other thing that actually causes nerve, the damage to the nerve that goes to the clitoris is actually uh, bike riding right. can do it because right. the, these banana seats right. um, can put enormous amount of pressure on the nerve that goes to the clitoris and the whole vulva and vagina. The, uh, in fact, just normal, normal banana seat can put four times or 400% the amount of pressure necessary to cause damage to these uh, to these nerves. I, I have seen that both in men and women, the pudendal nerve being pushed, crushed, so to speak, and uh, getting numbness in the periphery. And the other thing that women get sometimes after that is a diagnosis of interstitial cystitis from those seats, uh, which is right. interesting. And in fact, most of the people who have interstitial are diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, in fact, have the tight pelvic floor muscles and or um, pedendal nerve injury. In fact, rarely do they actually have um, a bladder component to their pain. Which, which I, I completely agree with you. And yet, whenever I brought that up, the people with the interstitial cystitis get angry <laughs> because it's something they've often sort of struggled with in a very frustrated way for many years without anyone adequately diagnosing them. And they, they, get, they hang on to that diagnosis of interstitial cystitis. Interesting. Well, just, you know, I, under, I understand why these women get angry no matter what, because, you know, this is, these are, they've been um, misinterpreted by many healthcare care providers. Um, they've been shunned aside. A lot of physicians don't like people who are suffering. These women are told that they're crazy, they're anxious. They do develop anxiety because of their chronic pain, um, and they feel dismissed and patronized right. by the majority right. of healthcare care providers. Right. So if they finally get a diagnosis, um, that they finally think that they can at least there's something they can hang their hat on. Right. And somebody who's like paying attention to that and trying to treat that, it feels good that they're sort of got something they can go with. Let's go back to vibrators. Can vibrators cause sexual dysfunction in women from overuse? Um, there's certainly reports of it. There's never been a very good long-term study. And of course, vibrators, just like some birth control pills, are getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, but yes, I've certainly seen women who have actually clitoral pain, persistent clitoral pain from very strong vibrators. Typically, they're the ones that are plugged in instead of the, vi- the battery ones. Um, and I've also had women who really have a difficult time achieving orgasm any other way um, because their, their clitoris almost becomes numb from such ex- intense stimulation. How do you treat that? Um, one of the best things to actually do is, of course, have them stop using um, the the vibrator. And you can actually take some medications such as uh, gabapentin, um, the brand name is Neurontin, to actually numb the nerves temporarily and allows the nerves to heal. And, and, stop. And, then, and then after a while, you can bring back normal stimulation. So let me, let me get this straight because people, I've heard this complaint a lot. So it's what kind of doses of Neurontin? You know, everyone's very, it's very variable in yeah. um, Neurontin. I mean, uh, people metabolize that drug very differently. Some yeah. people can take 100 milligrams and, and get a, a huge response, and yeah. some people need to take 4,500 milligrams. Yeah. Neurontin's one of those hard drugs. So we start low and we go up until they've really, you know, they've experienced a change in nerve conduction. Oh, and then they stop, the, they stop all sexual activity? As much as they can. For how long? Um, I typically give it three months to allow the nerves to heal. Right. right. That's, that's and then you very slowly bring it back in. And, with, and at that point in time, it should be very gentle stimulation, light touch. Wow. Um, and sometimes you allow basically the nerves to reset. 
and get back to their normal sensitivity. But if you're using these extraordinarily strong vibrators, again, they're you know they're really they're real rockets these days, <laughs> um, and they can really cause. The, the, you know, the nerves going to the clitoris, the dorsal clitoral nerve, is a very thin, small nerve. And the clitoris has 6,000 nerve endings. So you really can damage it pretty easily if you, if, uh, <laughs> if you have an intense, intense, vigorous um, activity. Now, that's, I'm, I'm not telling women to throw out their vibrators. I think that um, it's great that women um, have vibrators and, and learn to be able to achieve orgasm on their own with vibrators, but the super crazy intense ones may be too strong. Dr. Goldstein, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you coming in on, on short notice and uh, spending a little time with me. And I hope you're willing to come back in either here or in other areas uh, if I you know, can get you involved with commenting on these things. Because I think these things are much more common than people understand and really important that the, the patients be armed with uh, uh, information so they can bring the doctors up to speed, right? Absolutely. You know, Right now, you know, the patients end up um, educating their physicians, not the way the other way around in some of these things. Thanks, Dr. Goldstein. I'll talk Thanks to you for soon. I appreciate it. Diana Goldstein, the director for the Center of Vulvar and Vaginal Disorders in Washington, D.C. and New York, president of the National Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Let's put up the links to his site on drdrew.com and put up all his information there so you can get to him at drdrew.com if you need to. Uh, a reminder also to keep the Corolla Empire functioning, click through to Amazon on drdrew.com and uh, any purchases you have with the upcoming holidays and whatnot. Um, please do make them through these websites to keep this organization running. Thank you, Dr. Goldstein. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more of your calls after this. This week on Allison Rosen is your new best friend, Rory Scovel. Come from a family where if you tripped and fell down, my whole family would ask you if you're okay. And as soon as you said yes, it was like, well, then here come. <laughs> so we're going to make fun of you so hard for what happened now that we know that you're all right. So not like total jerks. But there will be a point when you're like, all right, let's, we all remember I fell. Let's stop doing it. So I sort of grew up in that family. So with a lot of my younger brothers and sisters, I was the first person to try to be like, I am going to throw in a comment. I'm going to try to make as many jokes about this thing. So I find that I have a lot of younger siblings who are very quiet, probably because they hate you. I was just so <laughs> overpowering about trying to keep attention. Subscribe to Allison Rosen as your new best friend on iTunes or go to AllisonRosen.com. Only from Corolla Digital. Allison's your new best friend. Welcome back to Dr. Drew Podcast. Very interesting conversation with Dr. Andrew Goldstein. We'll have him back again soon. Between Dr. Goldstein and Dr. Alter, everything you need to know about your external genitalia. Two easy lessons. Get on into the calls now. We're going to switch gears and talk about uh, whatever's on your mind, frankly. Let me look at some of these calls here. Okay, let's talk to Leslie online. ALC is 39, line 3. Leslie, what's going on? I guess for the first thing I'm going to do, I'll name out uh, quite a few medications to you. I know you're probably familiar with it. Depakote, ER, Extended Release, Prozac, Suboxone, Ativan, Permethazine, and Ambien. Okay, so you're a opiate addict bipolar, right? Yeah. And what's your question? And still suicidal. Every day. Does your doctor know that? <coughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I got to wonder if these replacement drugs... How much Suboxone are you on? Um, to be exact, I take a strip in the morning and a strip in the evening. Eight milligrams. Eight milligrams. Well, AM slash two. Eight milligrams twice a day? Yes. Okay. Um... Yeah, this is a really controversial area, Leslie. Uh, you know, there are people that would say you should be off the Ativan and Suboxone in a structured environment, working on your opiate addiction, as opposed to being on these opiate and benzodiazepine replacement medication. There is a black box warning on Suboxone that suggests it should not be given with benzodiazepines, particularly not clonopin. Uh, so there's that may be part of the problem. The other could be that your bipolar is not being adequately treated yet. Uh, and if you did, you say your doctor does know you're having suicidal thoughts regularly. I've been going with him for six years, and, he, and I've and been he, changed medication after medication. And he knows you're medication. on. He knows you're suicidal on a daily basis. Yeah. How long have you been feeling that way? Oh, since I've been 
since 2006. But so it's just to a point where I'm tired now. For six years, you're every day thinking about harming yourself. Exactly. Do and have, I have been many times where I have been in the hospital and I still come back home with, like, if I don't come back with the same medication, it might be a different, like, milligram. Right. I mean, you're in a pretty standard combination of medicine. I mean, these are these are powerful medicine. It's not likely that a lot of changes in medication is going to somehow magically make you feel better. Do you see a psychologist too? Yeah. Does he or she help you at all? No. How come? I just don't. Have you ever tried? Have you ever he been? Just asked me basically. Uh, bunch of questions and then want to go back to my past and it doesn't work. Do you talk about that stuff? Yeah. What happened in your past? That's what I'm saying. It's really, to me, I don't feel that there's anything damaging, so damaging in my past to make me this way. Well, it's not not exclusively. It's going to be a combination of things. Like, for instance, were you hit with objects? No. Were you hit at all? Not at all. Were you sexually abused? Not at all. Hmm. Well, I mean, it may just be that you have addiction and you have bipolar disorder, both of which are, have a genetic basis to them. So they're. Go ahead. I was going to say when you said the addiction yep. part of it, that hmm. you said the suboxone is because, is because of the addiction. Mm hmm. That's right. That that's a one way of treating addiction these days is with what's called replacement therapy. I'm not a fan. Uh, you know, if I were had sort of infinite resources for someone like you, we would put you back in a structured environment, take you off the suboxone, the adamant. Do not do this on your own under any circumstances. This is a very dangerous move, but in a desperate attempt to try to make things better for you, given how horribly desperate you're feeling and how miserable you are all the time. It's a tough way to live on these substances all the time. Usually bipolar patients are on the combination of an antidepressant and a mood stabilizer, which you are, feel pretty darn good. In fact, they feel so good they stop their medicines typically and uh, start thinking they don't need them and then they feel not so good anymore and go back on them. Listen, my dear, just go back to your psychiatrist and keep at it until you find an adequate explanation. Let's go to Michelle. Michelle, what's going on? You're 30. Hey, um, thank you, first of all, for everything you do. I really admire what you, the time you spend on people, um, and I'm a little discombobulated. But basically, uh, currently, I, first of all, I've been through a lot of emotional trauma, and my doctors seem to focus on that, and, and kind of that's a magnet for them, but I'm also... Um, in severe pain constantly. I've been well, through... Well, n- 97, 97% of chronic pain patients have a history of sexual and or physical abuse. I have neither of those. I had a... My father was murdered, um, and I had a baby right at the same time, and then my uncle committed suicide a year later. So there's some emotional trauma. But I, I, I definitely wasn't sexually or physically abused. But, hmm. um, however, I also had a traumatic injury in the middle of this, and kind of it never got better, and then the pain moved to all my joints. I've seen at least 50 people and specialist doctors mm-hmm. and NPs and everything else. Um, in this course, I've been to Mayo and, and have the $20,000 bill to prove and have just not been diagnosed um, other than basically what I'm getting is depression, NOS, CFS, um, you know, to me, I would say, and I, I, I'm certain you won't agree with this, but it would be a, a clinical Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease mm. diagnosis. I guess what I'm saying is, and, and I am not a pill taker, drug doer. I, I can't pill. Excuse my phone. I, I, okay. I, I hate pills. That's not what okay. I want to do. But it. It, my physiatrist, my current physiatrist, is allowing me to live at a seven plus at all times. Seven, seven plus a pain. I'm really frustrated. Seven plus a pain. Yeah. Well, let me just tell you that, that so what, what Michelle has talked about is chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia is part of that syndrome uh, and depression, which, again, people debate is the depression cause the pain or is the pain cause the depression or they concomitant. Um, and undoubtedly, you were on antidepressants and they didn't help. But let, let me just give you one bit of data that might help and that, and that has been my experience. 
is that people with unexplained musculoskeletal pain syndrome almost always have a sleep disturbance. Is your oh, sl- I, I do. And, and if you- I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. I did go for a sleep test, and I have a CPAP now. Well, not even just sleep apnea so much as getting your sleep hygiene squared. So you sleep through the night, and you have normal sleep cycling. And yeah. I, it, it, I challenge anybody out there to go two nights with, or three nights without sleep, and you'll see you everything aches. You feel awful. I mean, you just feel terrible. Oh. Imagine if you go to bed every night, and you think you're sleeping. You're sleeping as best you can, but you're kind of aware that sleep isn't the way it should be. And you wake up, and then you're in pain because you haven't been sleeping right, so the pain bothers you all night and keeps waking you up. It's a horrible cycle that people get into. So, Michelle, I, the only sort of um, perhaps bit of advice I have for you is to go work with your doctors on getting your sleep really systematically restored uh, until you're sleeping through the night well. That might help at least 50% reduction in the pain, if not more. Absolutely. I mean, I can tell you just last week, three nights in a row, I laid there with my eyes closed and I was awake. And of course, that exacerbates my pain. I, I totally yeah. agree with you and know right. exactly what you're talking about. But where, what do I say to these doctors? I mean, what do I You go in and I say, say I, help me sleep? Yes, I cannot sleep. It's terrible. I talked to another friend. A friend of mine is a doctor who said that maybe the sleep problem is adding to my pain. Help me find some sleep. And usually what I use with patients is trazodone, Seroquel, melatonin, uh, Benadryl. I yeah, know. Melatonin gives me – I freak out uh, on that. Then don't, then don't use it. I, I'm, you're going to have to – oh, which is a night terror. You sure nothing happened to you at night? Nothing weird happened in the middle of the night? I'm, I really am – I'm being hand to God. I'm all right. Not, all right. That's fine. You, but. I, I, but the sleep issue is something you, that should be able to be solved and really might help you. So you can focus on that as something, sort of a goal in the short term to go after. And your doctors, again, if they don't have, if they're not used to kind of going after that aggressively, find somebody who is. Dawn, you're 44. Hi. Hey, Dawn, what's up? Um, I've had a very long medical history, but I was misdiagnosed as a child um, with RSD. Okay, um, again, let's help. That's, re- that's a reflex sympathetic reflex dystrophy. Sympathetic dystrophy. Yeah. It's now yeah. called a regional pain syndrome. It's actually got a new new name. So, got to keep the change in the nomenclature as new doctors come in. Okay, so yeah. you had complex regional pain, and and um, then when I wasn't getting any better, I was in the children's hospital a great deal. Uh, <laughs> a hand specialist looked at me and said, "Well, you must be causing it because you should be getting better." Nice. So I stopped going and moved out of my parents' house. Um, you know, there was exactly what you said before about abusive uh, family or so forth so on. And um, I moved out when I was 17, uh, stopped going to all doctors, but they were all nuts because I knew that I wasn't hitting my own hands. I played the guitar. I, I was very active. I played basketball. And um, as I got older, my hands kept clawing and clawing and clawing more and more. I happened to have two children, um, and I, out of just being vain, I went to the doctor um, well, hand specialist, the one I thought was not the one who said I was hitting my, you know, causing it myself. And um, he looked at my hands and he goes, oh, my God, you have this very rare muscle disease. Your muscles are all reversed. Um, I could fix this. And I'm like, what? So I happened to, oddly enough, a, a physical therapist who was part of the Children's Hospital of Connecticut um, when I was there had told me, um, she, for whatever reason, saved my, my information because I was such a weird case. Uh, normally I throw it away, but when they moved to Hartford from Newington, they had taken my, she had my case in her garage. So she had all my old files from when I was a kid, so I still actually have all my medical information. So uh, she said to me, and I didn't understand why she kept saying this, she goes, isn't it a shame that when a person doesn't feel well, um, and a doctor can't figure it out, the doctor blames the patient. Yeah. And I kept saying, well, I don't care, you know, he fixed my hands. You know, within a week I was fine. You know, he operated on my forearm, reattached my tendons. And I love them. You know, I don't, I'm not looking backwards. I'm looking forwards. Okay. It, it's systemic, though. I'm the only person in the entire world, or, or so I'm told. Um, there's been a lot of publications about with me in it um, and uh, that um, talk about people who have it. They usually have it on their... When I was first diagnosed in my early 30s, I was told that I was one of six patients who had it in a limb. I was the only patient that had it throughout my entire body. Okay. So... My legs have gotten worse, and my right leg, um, I ended up getting a uh, staph infection, a MRSA, a C. diff at uh, near Presbyterian. Uh-oh. And, um, well, hold on, let me make sure I get this. So you were getting the repair on these muscles done, and you got infected? 
Yeah, I got an infection on my right leg. Oh. I've had about probably 10 surgeries, and they've all been fine. I've been able to heal after each surgery, no problem. And they've been nothing. successful in terms of controlling the pain and whatnot. Yeah, well, and then there's another uh, argument there, right? Some doctors who I, I take Oxycontin 80 milligrams three times a day. I take Valium. I'm still sick it three times a day, 10 right. milligrams, and Percocet. Um, it's needed for breakthrough pain. I don't usually take that at all. But I've got some of my doctors saying that, you know, they want to lessen it and they don't want me on it. Or the other one's saying, it's been 12 years I've been taking it. Right. And um, I had stopped taking it. And I told my doctor, I don't want to take it. You know, I don't really need that. A lot of, um, and then he says, you'll end up having, because I started getting seizures. Um, I forgot that whole part when I Jesus. All right. So take, take me to the present. What's what's the question now? All right. So my, my doctor uh, just told me the other day, because my leg is just enormous. And now we, uh, it's... Um, it's always weeping and all sorts of crap. So he told and me. And this, says, this, this is MRSA, the methicillin resistant staph aureus, right? No, no, this is um, just my lower, my leg. Um, it, I have, yes, I have MRSA right now. Yeah. Um, it, I, you know, once you have a jelly tablet, but um, I had a, a, a test recently where they said I got a call saying that they, didn't, they still didn't know what sort of medication to put me on. Um, mm-hmm. So. Um, what is the question? Let's get to it. My question is this is so strange, but. Um, my doctor happens to be the head of pediatrics, uh, or he was, he was cerebral palsy at HSS in New yeah. York City. Okay. And he would, um, asked me what I would tell my kids was wrong with me. And I used to say to him, I always spoke fun. I would say, oh, I get, you know, get a better parking or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he told me to bring my kids in to see him. And he said not to talk like that, to tell them the truth, because if I don't talk to them and tell people what's really going on, that they're going to think the worst. So now I get, I find out yesterday that he said, you have to have your leg amputated. It's horrible. You know, I know, but you got to do something. Now I don't know. People who have pain and who have medical issues like this don't realize that they're not the only ones affected. And I guess I'm asking you for what do I do for my family? Are you where are you having the amputation? BK below knee or whole? What are, know, maybe yeah, it's going to have to be my whole leg because um, uh, you need above the knee yeah, because uh, I, I guess I need four inches of good skin, and uh, I don't. So it's so, going to go from the hip. I hope not. I hope it's going to be mid thigh. Mid thigh. Uh, so, so there will be prosthetics available for you that are quite good. So I think you, you, the kids. Held your kids. Well, I've got one in college. They're both going to be pre. They're both pre med, and the other is actually in high school, but she's in a medical. All right, program. they're going to be. They're going to be fine. And what you need, what you need to show them is that you are fine, and that they're yeah. going to be fine, and it's not going to take their mom away. And this is a move forward. It's a, chronic illnesses are terrible, but this is going to be a solution, and that they're and you you're going to keep a positive attitude about it and get a prosthetic, and be fine. Now don't okay. don't don't lie. I mean, if you, I'm sure you'll have some down moments, and you should share those with them. But I think overall, they just need to know mom's going to be okay. Bottom line, they don't they don't care about your leg; they care about you. And okay. uh, and thank God we live in a time when there's so much technology to help you with. It sounds like this – and you've been through so much with this illness. My God, you talk about it the way people talk about sort of maintaining an old car. You're kind of detached from it, and it was, which is interesting and probably adaptive, probably helps you get through this because you, you just have to deal with it all the time. Yeah. This is just another part of your story, and it's it seems – what do you feel about medication? If I have a leg amputated, would I – and I asked my, doc, my, my doctor this. When I get like, uh, they were going to amputate my arm. I forgot that part of the story. Oh, when I was Jesus. kidding, I said no. Um, so, so what do I think about all the meds you're on? Is that the yeah. question? Yeah, well, a lot of meds. Yeah, and of course you want to get down to as little as possible. I don't know if you've become addicted to them or not. You have to sort of look at your family history or your own personal history if there's addiction in there. You'll know when this is all done, when you don't have a somatic source of pain anymore and you're still seeking pain meds. That's a time to maybe deal with another diagnosis in addition to everything else you're dealing with, which is addiction, which will have its own diagnosis and own course of treatment. Right now, you're jumping ahead. I wouldn't get into that concern right now. I would get into staying focused on dealing with these very specific surgical issues that sound potentially life-threatening if you don't take care of them, by the way, and then later deal with the issues that um, may have been precipitated by all this. What a story. Not my God. Listen, I want to thank Dr. Andrew Goldstein for joining us again. I've got to take an uh, extended break here uh, and wrap the show up here. Uh, I want to remind people that if they please would click through at drdrew.com, uh, the Amazon icon uh, that will help us maintain this uh, program and the whole Corolla empire. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you for participating. Very interesting show. Again, uh, if you don't listen to Andrew Goldstein conversation again, there was a shitload of information in that. I know the staff here is very um, uh, enlightened. They've all called their girlfriends, their wives. They've got people that they want to get this information to. It's, it's really worth studying what we talked about today. And we'll continue more of these. But right now, this is the end of this particular Doc True podcast. Thanks for listening. Digital.